Welcome to Marrow Masters Season 11, sponsored by the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society and Sanofi. The National Bone Marrow Transplant Link, established in 1992, strives to help patients, caregivers, and families cope with the psychosocial challenges of bone marrow and stem cell transplant from diagnosis through survivorship. Season 11 of our show focuses on thriving in survivorship. Here's your host, Executive Director of the NBMT Link, Peggy Burkhart. Welcome, everyone. We are now in Season 11, and today we welcome Luriana Hernandez. I met Luriana at a conference earlier this year, and I remember thinking to myself, this woman is amazing. I must get her to tell her story. So Luriana is smart, passionate, and incredibly authentic. So settle in, folks, for a wonderful chat with an inspiring lady. Welcome, Luriana. Thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you so much, Peggy. I want to say when I met you, I was like, she is amazing. So I'm <laughs> glad that we could build this friendship and continue to have more dialogue and talk about things that matter for us and for cancer patients. Well, thank you. That's exactly what we're going to do today. So let's get started with your life before diagnosis and what exactly happened. Well, my life before diagnosis, I felt was perfect in many ways. I was the clean eating, green drinking yoga enthusiast. I was a high profile network and local medical reporter and news anchor. So I had everything really going for me. And I thought I was invincible. Like when I travel now and speak, I said, yes, I checked off the diet. I checked off the exercise. Everything was going my way. I had a two-year-old son at the time of my diagnosis. I was also going through fertility to have a second baby. So everything seemed to be going my way. And I, my whole focus was, I help you get fit. I help you change your life through diet and exercise. And never in my wildest dreams would I imagine that it would be me becoming the story. Uh, for sure. I want to mention, though, during that time, because as a news anchor, especially when you're a morning news anchor, you're waking up at 1.45 in the morning for work. I would have my hair TV makeup ready and there's a lot of pressure on how you look. I would nurse my son, have a nanny show up by three. I was on the set by 4.30, interviewing people all day long. And I was tired, but I didn't listen to my own warning signs because who wouldn't be tired with that kind of schedule in the first <laughs> exactly. place? And I was everywhere. When I got off the air at 12.30, one or two o'clock, depending on the news cycle of the day, then I was out at emceeing galas and functions. And so I was just living this life. And at some point, I felt like something wasn't right. And I went to a doctor and he was like, you're just tired, overworked and a new mom trying to have it all. Imagine that. Huh. So then I went to another doctor when I didn't feel well. So I say this because I tell people I was twice misdiagnosed when I had access to whom many people believe were the best doctors in oncology in my area. So I always say get a second opinion, even when you like the first. But yes, I thought I was invincible. I believed that doctors said I was okay. And I was a new mom trying to have it all. So I believed it. Absolutely. I can't imagine what that was like at that time with your son only being two years old. You're trying to have another baby. So what happened with your young family at that point when you were finally diagnosed correctly? Well, I was in the midst of a fertility treatment and my fertility doctor, not my oncologist, diagnosed me. I did not feel well and I called my fertility doctor who had become a family friend and I said, I'm throwing up, something's wrong with me. And he said, I am going to do blood work. And he said, he came to my house in tears mm. and I thought maybe something had happened to the embryo, to the baby. And he said, I think you have cancer, AML leukemia. Ugh. 
and I fell to my knees and I said, you have the wrong person. I am the clean eating, green drinking, <laughs> yoga enthusiast. Again, I said it. And even though he was a family friend, I was angry with him. And I said, you were wrong. You're not even an oncologist. And he said, I will not let you go through with this baby and I will not continue to treat you unless you go get a bone marrow biopsy. Now, mind you, I had no idea what a bone marrow biopsy was, despite the fact as a high profile news anchor, I had raised money for great organizations like the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society and other organizations for leukemia patients. But when it's you becoming the story, you forget all of that. Mm. So I had the bone marrow biopsy. And then on a Friday night, the doctor called me, the same doctor, the oncologist who said, you're just a new mom trying to have it all. And he started to like stumble over his words. And I said, just spit it out. And he said, you have AML leukemia. Mm. Your fertility doctor is right. I fell to my knees. My husband was living in another state because we were trying to have it all in our media careers. And I knew I had to be vulnerable and I had to take to social media because I said, I'm not going to get the help I need here after being misdiagnosed. So I, I used my platform and really my access and my connections as a news anchor, went on social media and I said, look, I know that I had a clean eating show. I know that I'm the clean eating, green drinking fitness reporter, <laughs> but guess what? Bad things can still happen to fit people. Bad things can still happen to good people. And I need your help. And I really, at some point, I was so hesitant to post it because I felt like I was a fraud or something because I thought, here I am telling people, drink this green drink not to get cancer. Mm -hmm. Well, what I should have been saying, drink this green drink so you're fit enough if you ever have to fight cancer. Ah. So I took to social media. And when I did, there was an outpouring of people from all over the country who had followed different stories that I've reported on. And everybody had a story, by the way, as we all know, when you're diagnosed, someone said, oh, my aunt had breast cancer. I'm like, what does that have to do with leukemia? But thank you for calling. <laughs> um, but through all of that, within 24 hours, I had a call from world-renowned oncologist, Dr. Mark Levis, who is my hero mm -hmm. at Johns Hopkins, who said, he called me and he said, get on a plane, say goodbye to your son. You don't have time to waste. We have a bed waiting for you. Ugh. And I, and I, I was stunned and shocked. And I said, well, I want to take my son to Atlanta. At the time I was living in Austin, Texas, I want to drop him off and see my family and say goodbye. I had no idea I was saying goodbye for an entire year, by the way, because with all my medical reporting, somehow I didn't cover that part of the story, that with blood cancer, there's so many unmet needs and lack of innovation that you could be saying goodbye to your family for a year if you make it. Mm. And so I got on a plane by myself while a friend, I kissed my son goodbye. And I'll never forget because I suffer from the PTSD of the trauma of him saying as I walked down that jetway, and I still get upset because I'm still in therapy for it. And he said, mommy, mommy, mommy. And it echoed down that jetway. Mm. And I had to not turn around and board that plane and know that I was going to fight for my life, but I had to say goodbye to my son. Sure. Because I had access and I had the privilege and I had to do it. I thought I was going to come out alive because apparently they were misdiagnosing me in Austin, Texas. Okay. I'm sure there's a great oncologist there, but nobody's perfect. And I was overlooked. So I got on that plane. And when I checked in, they said, you need to put your armor on. You're going to be here for an entire year. And that's where we could talk about later. I, I came up with the name armor up for life. I took to social media and it became my friend and I shared my story. 
Wow. So that <laughs> I'm trying to keep up here because this is just incredible. So let's talk about what happened next. You, you say goodbye to your family. You're fighting for your life. Let's finish the story before we jump into this incredible mission of starting this nonprofit. So keep going. So what led to actually my bone marrow transplant, which I ultimately had 10 months into the one-year treatment is, this was January. I was checking it at Johns Hopkins. And, you know, people were saying, you don't look sick. Even when I was being checked in there and they're putting the Hickman in, the port, the Hickman to start feeding the chemo in, like within 24 hours of my arrival. And I was like, oh, yeah, but I'm sick. I have AML leukemia. I was told I had a 25% chance of survival if I was German, not Cuban, hmm. because there are no statistics or not enough, I should say, statistics. We know in the black and brown communities, and I'm Latina. And so that to me alone was a shock to hear my doctor say, well, this is what we have if you were German. And so there I began what's called high DAC, high intensity chemo. I, I must say, because I was fit, I started to realize that the silver lining of those green drinks and the clean eating and the no gluten, no dairy, no sugar, no, all this <laughs> no, was really working in my favor because I prepared for the fight. As my oncologist said, you shouldn't fit for the fight. So you may have 25% chance of survival, but you have all 25. We're going to push your limits, max out your doses, give you the strongest dose of chemo. And we're going to try to do high DAC, which is really like four intense rounds of chemotherapy that could last over 30 or 40 days. Like you take the chemo for 10 days cycle, your counts drop, you become neutropenic where you have like no counts, you're very immune compromised. Then you wait for the engines to rev in your body and build yourself back up. And once you're built back up, they're like, oh, now we're going to take you back down with another round of 10 days of chemo, knock you down. Yes. And each time, because it is compounding, it takes more time to rebound and more time to come back up. And by round four, Instead of taking 30 days to rebound, the next time it took like 45, the next time it took like 60, it took like 80 or 90 days. And here I am sitting in the hospital, staring at four walls, yes. FaceTiming with my son who did not remember me. And I'd have to look at him and smile and say, mommy loves you and mommy's doing great. And I'd turn my head and turn the phone away from my face and I would just cry. Sure. Because I was like, this how could this be possible? Mm -hmm. And how did I not cover this in all my years of reporting? And I felt such guilt. And I said, I have to continue to, this story's bigger than me. I have to tell this story because if I'm fit, I'm connected and I'm suffering and I'm struggling and I'm walking two to three miles a day while I'm getting chemo suffering. How are other people going to survive this if we don't educate them, empower them about mobility and how to get in and get access and get information. So really how I kept myself busy, it was a survival plan of, well, you're going to stay busy. You're going to report from your bedside mm -hmm. because it was brutal. And to hear people walk up trying to get admitted and their hearts weren't strong enough so they couldn't get intensive chemotherapy. As we know, your heart plays a role. And if your heart is not damaged before you start chemo, it will be afterwards in many cases. So everything as a journalist, everything is a story. You see everything in pictures. And I would see people struggling down the hall. I'd look at my bag of chemo on my IV pole, and I'd look at the next person's chemo bag, as my oncologist said, and they were smaller. And I knew that they maybe had comorbidities, which, as we say, like diabetes, hypertension, 
obesity, and they couldn't fight as much as I could fight. And yet we're all having odds of 25% or less. Now, this was in 2014, and the numbers may have changed. But as we know, and you're talking to me, it's still a very hematology, the leukemia space, the blood cancer space is still an area that they need to crack the code. And it's an area of many unmet needs. Um, so that year was hell. Now, getting to my transplant, I'm sorry I deviated on you. <laughs> That's okay. No, this is I great. Told you. <laughs> <laughs> you just keep going, girl. Ten months into my treatment, they came to my room and said, we're going to let you go home and, and see your son because we don't think we can do anything for you. And we feel like this was the only thing because the transplant, again, for my situation, everybody's different, has so many risks that you might die. And we feel this is all we can do. Ugh. So here I am thinking I'm going to see my son. Then they came back to me and said, well, you know that clinical trial you signed up for that's going to look deeper into your bone marrow and look at the baby cells to see what they're going to grow up to be? Well, your baby cells are going to grow up to be cancer. And if we don't get you a transplant before they grow up and you come out of remission, you're going to succumb to the disease and die. Wow. I fell to my knees and thought, how? How is this possible? Like everything was another story, like a made-for-TV movie in my head. Like I, I, I was a journalist for 25 years. I crisscrossed the country. I've interviewed so many high-profile people on so many different medical stories, and yet I never covered this. Mm. So it opened my eyes, and they said, here's the problem. You're Latina, and Be the Match and the bone marrow donor registries are not diverse. There are not enough people who look like you who are volunteering to donate their bone marrow. So true. And if your sister, who is your only match, does not pass the medical tests, and we knew she had a heart murmur, you will succumb to the disease and die. Mm. And so there I was in a race against time, sitting outside the door where they evaluated my sister. By the way, we're already broke at this time, paying for her to fly out, because if your family donates, nobody covers your transportation unless you're a stranger donating. So here we are, we fly her out. She goes through all the medical testing. I was sitting outside the door like a child on the floor, just crying and trying to put my ear to the door. Because if she says one thing that the psychologist doesn't think that she's appropriate for me or not ready for it, they can cancel it. Ugh. And there I am not making it and my son without a mother. So I was crazy like a lunatic, really had gone off the deep end saying, just pass her, just pass her. I told my sister, just tell him anything. That, just say yes, yes, yes. So they pass her. And um, we go through with the bone marrow transplant. Great. I still didn't know that it takes two years to get through that transplant. And there's more hurdles. You know, it's hard what, as a patient. We're sitting there and you celebrate with people on social media, your friends in your circle, like, yay, the transplant worked. They don't realize you went through a whole nother setup of chemotherapy, a whole nother setup of full body radiation, which brings other long term complications later in your life. Mm hmm. Then you go through the transplant and you get the gift of life. Mm -hmm. So at that point on October 29th, I got the gift of life. And every day since then, we have a cake. We celebrate the gift of life because it is something I treasure. Um, I get emotional because we put up a Christmas tree because at that point they had told me in October, I want to back up when they found that the cancer was coming back. They let me rush home and put up a tree to take some quick pictures with my son. <sighs> because they didn't think I was going to make it because I had already been through HIDAC and normally you don't do the first 10 months and the transplant. And I did both. So they said, we're going to let you see your son because we don't think you're going to live. 
And so there I was running around looking for a Christmas tree in October on October 11th. So every October 11th, we put up our Christmas tree and we call it the tree of life. Oh, that's beautiful. And we keep it up for the rest of the year because I'll never forget that moment thinking this may be the last picture I take with my son. And it may, may be the last time I see him. Sorry. It's, it's no. no matter how far removed I am from that, it is traumatic for me. I have nightmares to this day of being separated from my son. Sure. And no amount of talk therapy will ever fix it. Um, so we go through the transplant. It's another 100 days. They let me after 100 days. I told them, if you do not let me out by Christmas, I know it's not 100 days yet. I am going to die of a broken heart. Like, I need to see my son. Mm -hmm. And so on Christmas Day, they said, we're going to let you go home. But we don't know if you're going to live. Oh. Because we don't know if it worked. Okay. And so I went to the airport. We had to pay. Again, it was $1,000 for a last-minute ticket. We had no money. We charged it, maxed out our cards, went into debt. And I ran to my son, and he ran right past me. Like, we never met. Oh, no. And I just thought, how is this right? And how many other people are suffering? Like, I'm suffering who have not verbalized and talked about this. Mm -hmm. I mean, as a news anchor, you're taught to share your story, whatever you're going through, to relate to the viewers, to be vulnerable and transparent. And I thought, that's my MO. That's who I am. I'm an open book. And if I'm suffering like this and we're broke, broken, emotionally broken, physically broken, financially broken, who else is suffering like I'm suffering? So it was a long year. But what nobody tells you is the PTSD that follows, mm -hmm. the trauma that follows, the reintegration with your family. You know, like the military has that for veterans who go to war. And I will never compare myself to the level that a veteran does for our country. But I was at a different war and I came home and there was no reintegration plan. No way to get to know my family again, to get to know my husband. Pivoting, I literally went from living the life as a high profile news anchor, fighting for my life, and then so lost into survivorship that I wanted to take my own life because I didn't know how to get back up. This pivoting sucked, to be blunt. Mm -hmm. And I'm well-educated. And I have the tools and the connections and friends who know people in high places. And apparently, I still didn't have the tools to do it. And that's why I said, we have got to give patients the tools. Because if people like me can't do it, how else are other people doing it, especially in the underserved communities? Absolutely. And that's why you're here today. Because right now, when people are listening to this, this is helping them. This is making them feel less alone. It's making them feel normal in everything you're feeling, I'm sure, is how many of them have felt. So let's ease into how you took this wanting others to learn and share your knowledge and how the heck you thought to start a nonprofit <laughs> called Armor Up, which is just such an incredible name. Thank you. Well, I felt like I, you know, I have a moral obligation I always feel that people who, I mean, I don't have celebrity status like Shaq or Katie Kirk, but we all have a platform in a different way. And if you have a platform and you're a public figure, I feel you have a moral obligation to help people mm -hmm. and to share your story, whatever you're going through. And I cannot go through the fire like I did and not turn around and lift the people up behind me and give them a ladder to climb up and get out of the depths of hell that I was in because I know they're in there too. And I knew that I had to make the path better for others. So I'm a storyteller. I see everything through the lens 
as a journalist, everything are pictures and stories to me. Everything I saw, I was interviewing even while I was there, patients in the hall. (laughs) I can picture this. (laughs) Administrators would come after me with HIPAA policies saying you cannot (laughs) knock on Alejandro's door. You can't knock on Jennifer's door because I was saying, hey, you got to get up and walk. You know, one day in bed sets you back four days of muscle strength. Four days in bed sets you back an entire month. You got to get up. And don't drink that smoothie because it's not a smoothie. It's ice cream and strawberries. Let's get a delivery from Whole Foods down the street. So I drove them absolutely nuts at Johns Hopkins. But I didn't care because I I have my 3P protocol I talk about. And it's prepare, present, prevail. We all have to prepare ourselves for illness because something can happen to all of us. And I prepare by being fit and eating right. So we present well to our medical team and position ourselves to prevail. But the fourth P that I don't really mention all the time is that you have to be a pain in the neck. <laughs> and that's the clean way of saying it. Because this is where the Latina in me comes out, that I was a pain in everybody's rear end. Yep. On that hall at the hospital, because I said, I have a megaphone, I have a platform, and I'm going to shout everything I learn on the mountaintop. Like, you're a world-renowned facility. Where is the psychological help? Why am I calling my NBC psychological people all my contributors who's contributed to stories to help me navigate this from a psychological standpoint. Why am I leaning on them? Where Where's the psycho-oncology support? Where is the cardio-oncology? So I had to like raise flags and bring things up to get things done. And I knew they were like, we better save her because she is going to drive us crazy. And I did. Get her out of here. Save her and get her out of here. Get her out of here. <laughs> get her out of here. Let's heal for her get her moving and send her on our way. (laughs) So I knew that really I became very passionate. And I would always say that this story was bigger than me. And I'm I'm very spiritual. My Christianity is really the core of who I am. Mm -hmm. And I don't push that on anybody. But I will say that during that one year there, I had to put faith over fear. I would beg to see my son and they'd say, if you don't put faith over fear and you see him now, he could kill you. Mm. You have to put faith over fear. So what I had to do was humble myself, which I tell other people going through treatment, wade the flag, ask for help, build a pit crew for yourself. Mm -hmm. And as I built the pit crew, I had friends who could help with meal trains for my mom, friends who could help raise money for airfare to bring my son home, friends who could help for psychological support, friends who could help me pivot in my career, friends who could help me in many ways. So when I realized that I said I have to build a pit crew, That's one thing we're working on at Armour Up for Life because I can't selfishly say I survived and not help other people and not build systems in place that I built for myself. Good. And I I will say survivorship is hard, even after transplant. I just learned, and again, I know I'm a little ADD now. I was before, but after the chemo. That's okay. So forgive me, but I'm also learning and everything I learn, I share with people who we help through Armour Up for Life. I just learned like, hey, you had two rounds of radiation, full body, not like you might get with breast cancer that's targeted. Do you know that the doctor told me, according to this doctor, one full body round of radiation gives you a 40% higher chance of breast cancer? Mm. Now, why was nobody following me so closely to say you need scans, you need a mammogram, you need this every year? Sure. I have no idea. But guess what happened on the fifth anniversary of surviving AML leukemia, the gift of life, the cost of winning, I was diagnosed on the day we were celebrating with breast cancer. Oh, man. So 
secondary cancers happen. But what we can do is instead of put our head in the sand, and yes, I know depression is real, we have to empower ourselves and we have to be proactive. If you know you had full body radiation, like many blood cancer patients might have, get yourself in scans early and often. Be proactive about other cancers that it might put you at risk for. And so as I learn these things, because I have access to many high-level doctors through my connections, I share it because I want to share it with the world. Mm -hmm. And so that's my role. Absolutely. And it's the reporter in you. You will always want to do that. You'll always want to make the world a better place. You'll want people to learn from your experience. And that's what you're doing. So how is Armor Up? What is it all about? The big focus, the overall focus is called mastering survival. Okay. And by no means does it mean that I have mastered survival because <laughs> I every day is a journey and another hurdle, even nine years out from transplant, two years out from finishing breast cancer treatment. But I want to empower people to master survival from the day of diagnosis. And by the way, yes, you are a survivor from the day of diagnosis, I remember walking the halls at Johns Hopkins and they had an expo or a fair in the lobby and they wanted to give me a survivor pin. And I'm like, I'm not a survivor. I'm still in here fighting my butt off. Mm -hmm. And they're like, oh, no, you're a survivor from day of diagnosis. So put this six month pin on. So our nonprofit, Armor for Life, that's what we focus on, mastering survival, especially focused on the underserved. But we're not going to turn anybody away. We want to help you master survival from the day of diagnosis, what questions to ask how to get a second opinion, why you should get a second opinion, how to build your pit crew. And when you get through the bone marrow transplant, when you get through the last day of chemo and you rip that Hickman out or your port and you're done with that, there's a phase two of survivorship that is so complicated that is not really being addressed in the oncology space. I mean, yeah, we talk about it, but when you go to the conferences, everything's like, oh, the patient experience. Yes, that matters. Let's be patient-centric when we talk to patients. Yes, that matters. But who's saying, how are we catching these patients? Where's the net to help them as they pivot in their career? Maybe mentally, cognitively, like me, you're not the same. Mm -hmm. Maybe you're broke and you lost your house and you have to rebuild yourself financially. Maybe you have neuropathy, like me, bone pain, muscle atrophy. Maybe you had a secondary cancer. Maybe you have all these problems that they put into these three lovely letters, QOL for quality of life. Mm. And I want to educate people. And so one thing we're doing is we're about to go into a wonderful partnership for a content series called Be Your Own Hero. And in that content series, we are going to educate patients on how to be your own hero because you have to. You have to get educated and understand what kind of treatment you had, how it's going to impact you the rest of your life if you're in phase two of survivorship and how to advocate for yourself when you even go to other doctors. And I'll give you an example in a moment. So that's part of it, the Be Your Own Hero series. We're also going to be launching our own podcast. So I'll have you on. <laughs> Sounds good. Can't wait to share about our podcast called Stage Free. And uh, that's another podcast where we will be talking about phase two of survivorship. And things that I've learned, like I mentioned, I was the clean eating, green drinking, yoga enthusiast. And I was, they were like, don't worry about what got you here. Focus that you showed up fit for the fight. But now that I got through not one, but now two cancers, I am worried about what got me here. And I'm learning through researchers at Rice University, where I've had a privilege of speaking at, and MD Anderson and UT San Antonio, they're studying prehabilitation, which is the core of my message. 
is that we're all preparing for something that prepare, present, prevail, the three P's. Mm -hmm. And so I've partnered with them because what they're studying is fascinating, Peggy. They are looking at cortisol levels and they're saying, if your cortisol is high and the cortisol is your stress hormones, it's like when you feel like the hamster on a wheel. Mm -hmm. And many of us cancer survivors afterwards that ridiculous new normal that makes you want to roll your eyes and you're stressed about bills and you're stressed, 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 like you're, you know, drinking from a fire hose. That is chronic stress. Well, guess what? Chronic stress causes inflammation. Inflammation is a fertilizer for cancer. If you don't bring down your cortisol levels, what they're looking at in research is you put yourself at a higher risk of a secondary cancer, which the chemo and radiation already did. Mm-hmm. So they're studying how can we in phase two of survivorship work with patients to improve their lifestyle from diet and exercise, reducing their cortisol levels through yoga and meditation so they don't end up in another lane like I did. Because it's so important that, you know, you manage all the trauma that your body went through during radiation, during chemo. I mean, radiation affects your tissues, mm-hmm. your muscle tissue. When I had breast cancer, the doctors weren't talking to each other. It took me five months to heal from breast cancer surgery that should have taken six weeks. Why? Because my tissues didn't heal. I had a hole in my breast. And if they would have realized and talked to my leukemia doctor, they would have realized that the tissue was damaged from the full body radiation. Things would have been done differently. Sure. So there's so much that I've learned along the way, and I've been so privileged, and I've written stories about it, that it has to be passed on to other people so we can educate others. I know I deviated. So we are doing Be Your Own Hero series. Mm -hmm. We're launching a podcast called Stage Free. We're also launching a program called Pit Crews for Patients so we can do that whole ecosystem and build a pit crew for patients as they go through it like I did for myself. So there's a lot of wheels in motion. We're in the middle of working to get funding, at the cusp of funding. There's a lot of exciting things going on. And I'm so honored to be part of it because I want to help change patients' lives as they go through it and um, really change, you know, the lens to which you see things that you're going through. I have a feeling you are going to do that. And, you know, in the show notes, we can include information about your nonprofit and also maybe some of these articles that you've written uh, that somebody might want to take a look at. I know there's a lot of learning that's going to be going on. So, Lorianne, as we kind of wrap things up, I've seen pictures of your beautiful family. I know you guys are doing the best you can, and I'm so very happy for you. On the really tough days, what helped you get through it? What little pearls here can we end this with? Well, first, my son helps me get through it. I mean, I had to shift perspective. Now, I'm not telling everyone that life is a bowl of cherries because it's not. But you have to shift perspective sometimes. Like when they told me I had breast cancer and I said, can I fight breast cancer at home with my son at my side, not separated from him? Well, that's a win. Mm -hmm. So I really had to start shifting of like looking at the post-traumatic growth that I went through as well as the post-traumatic stress disorder. Okay. And looking, trying to find some sort of silver lining. The other ways that I cope is through exercise. You know, a lot of this is something that's really triggered within me because I was so terrified to not move because I thought that I wouldn't make it because I lost so many friends. But for me, coping is moving because I know movement matters when you're fighting cancer. Mm -hmm. There are countless studies that say that when you move while you're getting chemotherapy and during treatment, you improve your success rate. 
So I know those numbers and I know those facts. And so for me, I feel like it gives me a sense of control that I don't feel like I have. And so when I am stressed, the first thing I do is I disappear on a walk and I repeat the mantra, I am healed, I am cured. I am healed, I am cured. I am healed, I am cured. And I try to find some silver lining. And then I make memories with my son at every moment (laughs) because every moment matters. Absolutely. A quick thing, he graduated fifth grade. They didn't do a cap and gown. I was like, well, I'm going to buy a cap and gown. I'm going to be extra here. Put a cap and gown. We took pictures (laughs) because, you know, every day matters and you don't know what the future brings. And so I don't mind if people call me extra. For me, I made another memory with my son. Good for you. Now, this is this is just incredible. Thank you so much for your time today and sharing your passion and your, you know, this season is about survivors that go on to do incredible things. You don't sugarcoat it either, Loriana. And I love that because this is messy. This isn't easy. And you just show that you just get up every day and you put one foot in front of the other and you do your best. And I see your son's smiling face on Facebook (laughs) and whatever you're doing is working, my friend. So, well, thank you. Again, you have to advocate for yourself. Mm -hmm. Into survivorship, you have to remember to advocate for yourself. I just met with a psychiatrist the other day trying to get into a clinical trial. And she suggested for my depression, for my weight gain, for my drug that I do lap band surgery. I was like, excuse me? That's not good for my delayed healing marker and my new DNA. But thanks. But I had to advocate for myself. Mm -hmm. So I will continue to do that. And I am just honored and privileged. I would love to thank not just you, which I adore you and love you. And I think (laughs) you are so amazing. I can't wait to have you on my podcast. Oh, I'm there. (laughs) Yay. I also want to thank the National Bone Marrow Transplant Link for the opportunity to share my story because you guys are doing some incredible work and changing so many lives. And I hope that I've inspired others and I've added to the incredible work that you're already doing. Well, I can guarantee you that you did. And thank you. These podcasts are so wonderful and important and we just love doing them. So thanks for being our guest today. It's an honor. This has been the Marrow Masters podcast. If you know someone who would benefit from the information in our show, please share this episode with them. And don't miss future episodes of our show. Follow Marrow Masters on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube, or wherever you're listening right now. And to connect with the National Bone Marrow Transplant Link, visit nbmtlink.org or follow the link in our show notes.